KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. San Diego Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says the county must balance the risk and reality of COVID. We don't want to end up in this seesaw, on the list, off the list, open, closed type situation. I'm Alison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Thousands are evacuating in Northern California as wildfires multiply. Things are very challenging this year. You know, we, we see fire season come up every year and it seems to get longer and longer. Will calls to Uber and Lyft go unanswered tomorrow? And we'll cool down and relax with the latest episode in our summer music series. That's all ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Now that San Diego is off the state's COVID watch list, the focus turns to reopening. The county has given the go-ahead for 19 mostly private schools who were seeking waivers from the watch list to reopen as soon as the 1st of September. When and how businesses will be allowed to reopen for indoor activity has yet to be determined, with the county saying consultations with the state will take place this weekend. As more places prepare to get back to business, the county is trying to address the critical issue of child care with new grants being announced today and county officials are facing mounting pressure to release more information about where community outbreaks are occurring joining me is san diego county supervisor nathan fletcher and supervisor fletcher welcome to the program thank you maureen it's good to be here first of all tell us about the new grant opportunity announced today and how that will help parents get back to work as san diego reopens well, as a parent, I know how vitally important childcare is and have really worked hard. My office has pushed a number of initiatives uh, to try and help childcare. We did $10 million we drew down for childcare vouchers uh, months ago, a million dollars to help our summer camps up and running. And now we're looking at $35 million in grants that will go directly to childcare providers. They have great challenges, limitations in the number of kids, uh, restrictions on how they operate, limitations on parents' ability to pay. And so this $35 million will be directly uh, used to try and get more child care centers up and running to be able to safely care for more children. Looking at uh, the wide range of businesses in the county, county says it will be developing a strategy with the state to begin a phased reopening of indoor business activity. What would the basic structure of such a plan look like? Well, we have to wait and see. This is a state determination. Uh, they gave the order to close the indoor operations of those those sectors that were highest risk. Uh, and so we don't know exactly what it'll look like. Uh, my sense is it'll be something that that really takes into account the, the risk. The, the, the risk to COVID is not the same in all of the entities uh, that were closed. And so I think it'll take into account that. And I think it'll take into account the reality that we just came off the state watch list and our cases went down significantly because we took this action. And if we immediately or irresponsibly undid all of those actions, it's only logical that our cases would spike once more. And so figuring out how do we get 
get as much of our economy up and running as possible uh, while ensuring that we slow the spread uh, so we, we don't want to end up in this seesaw on the list, off the list, open, closed type situation. So it really is trying to strike that balance. In order to put together a new reopening plan, you're probably going to have to understand what went wrong with the old one. So what do we know about what caused the spikes that caused the second shutdown? Well, from my perspective, that's clear. We opened too many things too fast. Uh, I was very concerned and, and that was a matter of public record that I thought we were opening too many things too fast. Uh, in particular, high intensity, high exposure settings like bars, uh, indoor dining of non-household members. Um, and and I, I think it was just too much too fast. And, you know, in fairness, we're not the only place that, that, that you know, did the similar type thing. Uh, but I think the lesson learned out of that is we just have to move much slower uh, because not only in protecting life and our healthcare system, but in protecting our economy, it's more important, I believe, that we have a smooth, steady reopening than a herky-jerky start-stop. And so my hope is we can really learn the lessons from before, move a little bit slower, a little bit more cautiously, take a step, monitor the impact of the numbers, take another step, monitor the impact of the numbers, and really try and try and get through this as smoothly as possible. And if we are looking at a sort of phased reopening like that, how much time would you like the county to allot to see if a certain reopening caused a spike in cases? Well, let's see what the state comes out with. Let's see what the state and working with our public health officers determine is the proper number of days. Uh, and then uh, and then I think when we have that guidance from the public health experts, I think I think we can we can go from there. Now, one thing the public health department and county officials are being asked to do is release more information about where community outbreaks occur. And that pressure is not just coming from reporters. Our listeners have been asking why, when an outbreak is documented, can't the public be informed about where it is? Well, it's a fair question. I, I certainly understand it. We We could Theoretically, you could disclose the outbreak location uh, in the entire state of California. There's only one jurisdiction that does that, and it's Los Angeles County. Now, Los Angeles County makes no significant effort to do contact tracing uh, and robust case investigations. They've kind of been overwhelmed and given up. And the reason the public health experts have given me as to why we don't release the specific outbreak location is because it undermines the cooperation we get with business. So if there is a threat to the public, meaning there's a danger to the public, then we would share that information and tell folks to avoid that, that scene. But if we're working with the entity and we don't think that there's a threat to the public, uh, they've determined it's more important to maintain that cooperation. A uh, common analogy is if police officers were required to publicly disclose, disclose every single witness who ever talked to them, you would very quickly run out of any witnesses. And so it's been a hallmark of public health that when you're doing case investigations, if entities are cooperating and giving you information, uh, you won't disclose the location if there's no danger to the public. It would really create a, a shaming and probably undermine our cooperation. Uh, but it's something we can always relook and, and revisit, and we'll you know continue to try and be as transparent as we can uh, while taking action that we think slows the spread and actually saves lives. Well, you use that word. Isn't this really becoming an issue of transparency between the county and the public when it comes to their safety? No, I think it's an issue of tactics. If we want to believe public health experts and we want to trust doctors and scientists, when they tell us you can release this information, but you will undermine our ability to respond to a pandemic, I believe we have to listen to them. Now, if the public health experts and doctors come and say, you know what, we can release it, then I would support that. But they, when they tell us that, that, that if, it, if a situation is a danger to the public, we will make that available. If it's not, then we need to protect the confidentiality of getting good, reliable information. 
then I trust that. And so, you know, where we are, I trust our public health experts. I trust our scientists. They tell me this is a hallmark of pandemic disease investigation and response. Um, and so I, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt in this situation. Is it possible that the county will revisit the policy and begin providing the public with that information? If the public health experts come in and have a fundamental change of what they think is in the public health interest, then we, we certainly could. Or if there's some legal action that requires us to do it, then certainly we would comply with that. How do child care providers apply for the grant program that was announced today? The, we have a uh, website. It's in partnership being administered by the San Diego Foundation. And so if they go to the San Diego Foundation website, uh, they can apply for the grants. It's going to open on Monday uh, on the 24th, and it will be open for a 10-day period of time uh, where, where, where entities can apply. And there's varying grants uh, available uh, based on the, uh, the type of child care entity. How concerned are you about the, the uh, number of child care providers that may have to just fold up shop because of all they've been through for the last six months? Well, I'm very concerned. Uh, they, you know, I, I talk to child care providers. I talk to the individuals who are doing it, and they tell me we're, we're not going to fail our kids, but they need help. And that was why I thought it was so vitally important uh, to bring forward an action to have us make an additional $25 million investment uh, in providing direct help and assistance to the providers uh, so that they could get up and running. And, you know, in the early days of this, Maureen, we, we drew down $10 million to provide vouchers for parents uh, so that they could, they could access it. Uh, but I think we have to come back on the back end here and provide actual help and support uh, to the, the location so they can get up and running. And these are small businesses as well. I mean, they're not only vital to parents' ability to go back to work, um, but they're also employers, and, and we want to do everything we can to help them. I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, and thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. The major fires in northern and central California continue to explode in size. The LNU Lightning Complex in Napa and Sonoma counties has more than doubled in size since yesterday. In all, nearly 350,000 acres have burned as a loose ring of fires surrounds the Bay Area. Thousands have been forced to evacuate, and the larger Bay Area has been engulfed in smoke, causing the air itself to become dangerous. Joining me is CAL FIRE spokesman Thomas Schutz. And Thomas, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We heard from Governor Newsom yesterday that the major complex fires are a combination of these smaller fires, these hundreds of smaller fires caused by lightning strikes. Do firefighters have to use different techniques to fight these kinds of fires? Definitely. You know, operationally on the on the ground, we're, we're still fighting the fire the same way, um, getting water out there, cutting line around it. But when you have hundreds of fires, every little fire, even if a fire is only a few acres, our goal is to keep it as small as possible so that it doesn't become a burden. And to do that, it draws resources from the ground and from the air. And, and so um, really moving those resources around and, and trying to best prioritize these fires is, is a huge challenge for us. And uh, we're, we're really, we're bringing in all the resources we can to try and help us with that. Have firefighters achieved any containment on these major fire complexes? Some of them, yes. You know, um, earlier uh, the Apple Fire was was burning before we really saw a lot of the lightning strikes. That fire is looking very good now. Um, the the River Fire up in um, Monterey County is is looking better. Um, the the tricky part is a lot of times we get containment around the area where the fire started, um, but it continues to grow in a certain area, and so um, we slowly work our way around to um, 
the, the head of the fire to, to ultimately try and stop it. But when we have conditions, when we have weather conditions, um, like we're having with these high temperatures, um, a lot of those areas were in a red flag warning. And so everything's kind of coming together to, to um, really drive that fire. And that, that really, uh, that really hurts us when we're trying to build containment line around the fire and it continues to, to push in certain directions. Right. Can you explain how this intense heat that we've been having, uh, how does that affect the fire and how does that affect firefighting? A, a lot of these fuels have already dried out over the past few months. You know, we haven't had any really good solid rains in a lot of these areas. So you have timber that that's already um, dead or dried out. You have the grasses that have already cured. You have the brush where, where the fuel moistures are, are uh incredibly low and so the fire is able to take advantage of that and when you have the air temperatures that are very high um, it's really able to to make some significant runs you add that in with the topography out in these areas where it's very rural um, running uphill fire can run uphill very fast it, it ends up preheating the, the the fuel in front of it um, with all the hot gases and so all these um, things kind of come together you get a little bit of wind on it just to make things worse and these fires are, are really able to to grow very significantly as as we saw last night um, as these fires were really uh, starting to take off and grow in acreage has san diego sent resources up north to help fight the fires we have you know we we've obviously felt the temperatures down here it's it's very hot and sticky and miserable but um, we, we haven't had uh, quite the same conditions that they have up there. For, for one, our, our lightning activity was, was far less significant. We did have a fire start uh, last week um, up in the Warner Springs area. But um, generally speaking, we, we haven't nearly seen the amount of uh, thunderstorm activity. So um, we were able to send a lot of resources. San Diego is a very big unit. We have 40 stations. And so we were able to, to send up 27 engines to assist um, the north with all their lightning fires. To do that, we've had to bring on um, a lot of extra help. So we've held all firefighters on duty. We've staffed up all the extra equipment we have, um, extra crews, extra dozers to help uh, help supplement to make sure San Diego's still covered in case we do get a fire. Because uh, we certainly do still have the potential down here to have a, a significant incident. Right. How severe would you say our risk of wildfire is right now? I'd say it's still significant. Um, you know, a, a day like today where the, the moisture is higher, there's a little bit higher humidity, the fire is not going to run quite as severe as it, it would um, potentially in the north or later on in this season. Um, but, but it is still significant. We have the, um, the potential to see these fires run in San Diego. We have a lot of the same conditions. We have very dry fuels out there. Um, we have uh, the topography that, that works against us. And uh, ultimately, if, uh, if, if we get it in a certain area where we're not able to get a ton of resources on there, um, we're going to be competing with some of these other fires to get additional firefighting resources there. So um, for us, it's, it's really imperative. We always try to keep them small, and, and we do a very good job at doing that. Um, but, but ultimately, um, this, these next couple of weeks, it's going to be uh, imperative that we stop these fires small and don't um, allow them to grow into large incidents because that's when it's going to be um, become quite the burden and, and quite the challenge trying to get resources down here. Okay, I've been speaking with Cal Fire spokesman Thomas Schutz. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. This week, we're reporting on the startling number of elder care homes in places across California at heightened risk of wildfire. A KQED investigation found this is more than one-third of all these facilities in the state. 
When elder care homes aren't ready for a disaster, local first responders get the call for help. But they're already overburdened, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. Here with the next in our series, Older and Overlooked, are KQED science reporters Danielle Venton and Molly Peterson. It was a windy day in August, two years ago. A CHP officer had died that morning near a freeway in Fairfield. Lisa Romero went to see the makeshift memorial. On a hill behind it, she noticed a ribbon of orange flame. Romero knew older people lived over that way, with nothing between them and the fire. She went to offer help. I saw a man. He looked a little panicked and he was outside. The man worked at Loving Place, a small assisted living facility on Hancock Drive. And he told me, he said, I have a lot of residents inside. I only, you know, I have my car. I'm going to have to get them in. Some of them are not ambulatory. Romero is a nurse. She knew what that meant. So she went inside the care home to help bring people out. Then we started to gather their belongings. And then I remember one lady wanted to call a family member. So I helped her call a family member. The fire kept coming closer. Romero says eventually she flagged down police and asked them to call 911. And everybody worked together. The police, the Good Samaritan, the person that was running the home. I believe we sent two ambulances, right? Jimmy Pearson is the president of Medic Ambulance. And then they needed four when we got there, but it was too late. Pearson's crews, Romero and others, got the four residents out to safe shelter. And that fire came right up to across the street from that house and easily could have burnt that house down. In the end, Romero was there for hours. So was another volunteer. So were the police. It was exhausting. Feeling the heat, it was unbearable. Like you could barely even open your eyes. It was so strong, and I've never been that close to a fire. After a complaint about that evacuation, state inspectors verified that Loving Place had a plan. But they concluded that the staffer on duty wasn't adequately trained and wasn't able to follow the plan when the emergency came. KQED's analysis found that Loving Place is one of more than 150 care facilities at heightened risk for wildfire in Solano County. This year, with the coronavirus still spreading, Pearson says places like that should be prepared. If you're talking about a second surge or second wave, and then you throw in a massive fire, which is going to happen, you're living in fire world and, you know, pandemic world. The pandemic has reached skilled nursing facilities in fire-prone areas from the Sierra foothills to the suburban fringe. More than half of those facilities have reported coronavirus outbreaks. One way to protect older and disabled people in care homes is to demand more scrutiny for their emergency plans. Kathy Heyer, a gerontologist from the University of South Florida, says climate-driven storms have forced Florida to do just that. There's a real effort to make sure that that communication occurs so that people can talk to each other during a local emergency. Ask for help, ask for supplies, tell them that they need to evacuate or whatever needs to happen. And for assisted living in particular, Hire's co-researcher, Lindsay Peterson, points out that states bear primary responsibility. There is no federal mechanism to regulate assisted living. If it's going to happen, it will only happen on the state or local level. And Kathy Heyer says Florida law requires long-term care homes to get approval for disaster plans from emergency officials and regulators to check up on them. And if they don't find it, they fine either the assisted living or the nursing home for not having that plan. But in California, we don't do that. 
When Loving Place got in trouble for failing to carry out an emergency plan or train its staff, regulators couldn't even issue fines for those deficiencies. No law requires the state Office of Emergency Services or county emergency managers to look at the plans care homes make for wildfires or any other threats. My colleague Danielle Venton has been looking into how California responds to disasters. She picks up the story. Cal OES's Vance Taylor says evacuations are always risky for disabled and older people. During the pandemic, it's especially important for facilities to have watertight plans. We have to have it in our minds that grouping people together and shoving them off in a hurry to one location might present an equal, if not greater, life-threatening risk. Taylor's job is to make sure that emergency response plans include people who might otherwise be overlooked. Because of the pandemic, he says, Cal OES now recommends more spacing among evacuees at shelters and even renting trailers and hotel rooms to keep people separate. But he can only offer guidance, not rules, about planning for evacuations. We set out a blueprint. But state policy is that locals are responsible, the county officials. To do what it is they believe is in the best interest of the individuals in that community. Okay, what's the money look like for these things? Christopher Godley is the emergency manager for Sonoma County. He says the state expects more from disaster response than ever before. And so does the public. 20 years ago, if you sounded an air horn and you put a pillow on a cot in a gym, you were covered. That was the entire scope of your service set. In recent years, state officials have spoken more about emergency preparedness for vulnerable populations. KQED has found that 77% of Sonoma County care homes are in areas at heightened risk for fire. And when that wildfire breaks out and their plans are inadequate, the county has to divert from its other work mid-disaster to step in. But Godley doesn't have the authority to require better planning. So our relationship is one of certainly encouraging these facilities to step into that role, that responsibility more fully, develop realistic emergency plans, not just hypotheticals that sit in a binder on a nurse's station. Godley says the county's role is to warn vulnerable people when they need to get out of the way. Sonoma was criticized for inadequate warnings during the 2017 wildfires. Last year, the county began placing thousands of weather radios in schools and care homes where they can broadcast warnings and alerts. Some light up to warn the hard of hearing. Others use attachments to shake the bed of a sleeping person. Alerts also go out through text messages, emails, wireless emergency alerts, and high-low sirens that signal evacuations. And Godley says in pandemic times, work like this and extra staff time is costing more money. How much more? As a guess? 40%. Godley is now trying to get 10 shelters ready for any disaster to allow for distancing, where usually he would just need one. Okay, that's 10 times the amount of work and logistics, staffing levels and training for staffing. So it's a significant cost. It's not just buying two bottles of hand sanitizer and calling it good. And he worries that, despite his warnings and preparations, a 911 call to county services is still the backup plan for underprepared facilities. Technology is great, but it does not wheel a bed out of a home into an appropriate ambulance. What's needed, he says, is a long-term shift. Californians and their leaders need to plan for disasters as a way of life, not a last-minute scramble. Even if right now, and partly because of the pandemic, most local governments don't have the authority or funds to do that. 
I'm Danielle Venton. And I'm Molly Peterson, KQED News. KQED's data journalist Lisa Pickoff-White also reported this story. Tomorrow, how to protect elders who live independently when it comes to an emergency. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Kavanaugh. Uber and Lyft have said they'll shut down in California tomorrow unless a judge lifts a ruling requiring them to change their driver's status from independent contractor to employee. It's a standoff between the two rideshare companies and the state. They've been battling over how ride-sharing drivers should be compensated since a bill, AB5, went into effect in January, challenging a basic premise of the so-called gig economy. Sarah Libby, managing editor of Voice of San Diego, joins us now to explain how that might affect us. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So now, does this mean that people who normally rely on Uber and Lyft may have to find alternatives tomorrow? It certainly seems so. There had been a little speculation as to whether the companies were bluffing, but at least Lyft, for its part, has said definitively that they do plan to shut down operations beginning Thursday night. And so um, it's not clear whether Uber will follow suit, but, you know, at least Lyft has said they're going for it. So now San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez was the author of the, the initial bill, AB5, that began this battle over whether the rideshare companies should classify their drivers as independent contractors or employees. So briefly, how would her bill affect rideshare drivers' pay and benefits? Yeah, so AB5 laid out a three-part test that was based on a Supreme Court decision guiding when employers should consider a worker an employee. And many people argue that Lyft and Uber and other gig companies don't meet that test. And so they would be forced to consider their workers employees, um, which means that they would be entitled to benefits, workers compensation and unemployment insurance. One important thing to remember is that the bill also allows for part time employees. So it's not necessarily that they'd have to make drivers full time employees, but they would have to give them things like benefits. Now, the companies have been fighting it out in court. How has it played out so far? Yeah, there have actually been a lot of lawsuits on top of the most recent one that's causing all of this drama. Some of the gig companies have sued to overturn the law. And on the flip side, prosecutors have sued the companies for violating the law. And almost universally, the courts have sided against the companies. And they've said that AB5 is legal and that the companies appear to be violating it. Now, yesterday, San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner asked a judge to lift the injunction uh, that prompted the companies to say they'll stop service, even though they've known for a couple of years that this was coming down the pike. So so what is the mayor hoping to gain by that? Yeah, his letter to the court is kind of walking a fine line. He framed it as, you know, wanting to prevent this big disruption caused by the riot share companies suspending their services um, and giving lawmakers and the companies time to come to a solution The problem with that, of course, is that AB5 is the solution that the lawmakers came up with. So there is a similar lawsuit filed by the San Diego City Attorney against Instacart, a grocery delivery app, that's kind of in the same situation where a judge ruled that this company is likely violating the law and should make its 
workers, employees, and that injunction has been put on hold while the case plays out in court, um, which means Instacart can keep operating as usual. So it seems like the mayor just wants to see the same thing happen here. But Mara Elliott has actually filed a suit against the rideshare drivers too, right? So in some ways, it looks a little bit like the city of San Diego's got a divided front on this. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mara Elliott uh, is one of the prosecutors who filed this lawsuit against Uber and Lyft. And like I said, she also has uh, filed suit against Instacart saying that they're violating the law. And she's arguing that those companies aren't just harming their workers, but that they're also harming other businesses that are playing by the rules. And so both her and the mayor are arguing that they're the ones sticking up for businesses, but they clearly have much different interpretations of what that means. And Assemblywoman Gonzalez uh, weighed in on Twitter about the mayor's request. What was her response? Yeah, she um, is certainly not shy about waiting in on Twitter to things. Um, she said she was disappointed in the mayor's decision, and she also, you know, questioned some of where he's getting the numbers that he put out. And so it doesn't seem like they're likely to see eye to eye on this issue anytime soon. Now, voters, of course, are going to have a chance to weigh in on all this in November with Proposition 22, which is from the the, the rideshare companies. What is the solution that it offers? So they want to be exempted from the requirements of AB5. And they've said that, you know, to compensate, they are willing to give their drivers some additional perks and benefits, um, but certainly not to the extent that AB5 would require as far as unemployment insurance and workers comp and the ability to, you know, set their hours and a lot of the flexibility um, that they're seeking. So, Sarah, if the rideshare companies do stop operating tomorrow, what alternatives do consumers have these days? I mean, we don't see taxis around much more, do we? Yeah, I mean, some companies, um, I'm sorry, some cities have actually formed nonprofits that have, you know, offered similar services under a a different model. Um, And so perhaps that's a possibility in San Diego, though it wouldn't happen right away. And then on top of, you know, Taxis, I suppose people would be forced to use public transit. We've been speaking with Sarah Libby, Managing Editor of Voice of San Diego. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks again. And in breaking news, a state appeals court has granted an emergency stay that will prevent the shutdown of Uber and Lyft ride hail services that was set to begin at midnight across California. The nonprofit Veterans Village has a new president and CEO following the departure of Kim Mitchell in November. The organization, which created Stand Down, runs programs for homeless veterans or veterans in need of drug treatment. The new leader of the organization spoke with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh, and here's that interview. So, Akilah Templeton, you're the new president and CEO of Veterans Village. You're the first non-veteran to run Veterans Village, a venerable organization. It's been around, founded by Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to spend your life working with Mm -hmm. veterans? Over the course of my career, I've worked with several populations who have experienced homelessness, who have experienced poverty and, and hunger. But the veteran piece, I think, just really struck a chord with me because of the, uh, the irony there, right? And, um, and that, irony, that irony is what? 
for me, the irony is just in, you know, the reality that we actually have homeless veterans in America. Are you able to do everything? Uh, drug treatment, um, outreach to homeless? Are you able to keep every one of your programs up and running right now? Uh, I think that we are doing what we can the best that we can, and so I think there are certain you know, elements of all of those things that you've mentioned that have certainly uh, survived. Uh, we are doing outreach, we are you know, providing groups, but we're doing it differently. And so uh, we may not have a situation where you can have, you know, 10, 20, 30 veterans uh, uh, in a space, but we're, we're finding ways to do it. You were running a temporary shelter on, on Point Loma that's since shut down. Uh, mm -hmm. Are we going to see this Veterans Village changing? Uh, are we going to see uh, a new direction in the mm -hmm. next few years? Well, you know, certainly I think all organizations uh, experience some level of change and evolution, right? And that's a good thing, right? It just means that um, the needs are changing, the demands are changing, and it's up to us to adapt. Does that take time? Yes. Were we already headed down that road? Yes. Uh, but then the unexpected happened, right? COVID happened. And so um, it may take us a little longer. <laughs> So there are a number of veterans that are housed right now over mm -hmm. at the convention center because mm -hmm. of, of COVID-19. Yes. Uh, what role are you playing in trying to get a more permanent situation for those veterans? Yeah, so, uh, so very soon I'll, I'll take my first visit down to the convention center uh, to actually see uh, what's happening firsthand. But I can tell you that even though this is only week three, that was actually my priority coming into the door. And so. Uh, we've been working diligently uh, over the past couple weeks to um, collaborate with uh, other agencies, with landlords. Uh, we're looking at some of our programs and we think that we have some, some pretty solid options for uh, moving some of our veterans uh, from the temporary shelter envi environment into permanent housing. And what's the biggest impediment there? Do you have enough landlords who are willing to take those vets? Well, you know, I think the challenges are the same everywhere, right? There is uh, a low inventory of affordable housing. There are eligibility requirements. There's bureaucracy and paperwork and, uh, and all of that. And so uh, each situation is different. We are certainly looking at each case, uh, each individual, each veteran. You're not full here right now. Is this a place where those veterans could be going? Uh, this is an option. And so actually we've uh, done plenty of outreach at the shelter. We are working with veterans to determine uh, if this is the best fit for them. And so for those veterans uh, willing to come and, and enroll in some of our existing programs, we have certainly presented them with that opportunity. Thank you so much for talking to us. No problem. That is Akila Templeton, the new head of Veterans Village, speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Kavanaugh. 
nature may very well be the origin of music. Birds singing, wind whistling, water flowing. All these sounds create a relaxing symphony that can give us a grand perspective beyond what we see on our tiny screens and relief from the stressful sounds of traffic, blaring TVs and crowds. And during what seems like a never-ending quarantine, music and nature are some of the few things that help us feel normal. So let's introduce our next guest, Jesus Gonzalez, whose music draws inspiration from nature and so much more. Here's his song, Never Been So Happy. Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us on Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So talk to me a bit about what inspires you. What makes you make music? I love nature. I love poetry. I read a lot of Rumi and Hafiz. I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take from nature and just our human experience in general. A lot, of, a lot of my vocals are inspired by blues, sometimes African music, a lot of classical Indian music. But there's also overtone singing, which originated in Mongolia, I believe. Those are very inspiring elements in my music. seems like nature is definitely one of your big influences. Has that been the case ever since you began? It was, yeah. I, You know, it's interesting. I'm not religious anymore, but I was. And reading a lot of stories about angels singing and stuff in the Bible when I was little really mystified me. And so that was a huge inspiration as well. Um, but nature definitely um, came through and, and sparked something deeper in me. And what is it that you hear in nature that inspires you to start making music? Just the way the natural elements sound. I mean, there's, there's, there are rivers, there are insects, the way the wind blows through trees. It, and it goes much deeper than their sound. It's more, of, it's more of a feeling. We're going to listen to your song, Harmony Grove. Tell us a bit about what inspired this song. So Harmony Grove was inspired by a hike I took in the Elfin Forest. And this, of course, is Elfin Forest right here in San Diego County, right? Indeed. And um, it was just the perfect day. There was, it was kind of a rainy, hazy day, and the sun looked so beautiful behind the haze. And I was just so uh, moved 
by the whole entire experience and I had to write a song about it. was Harmony Grove by Jesus Gonzalez. So now a lot of your songs are inspired by, by some of your favorite places in San Diego. Tell us about your song, Kingdom of God, and then we'll listen to it. So I went to Mount Laguna, uh, which is about maybe 40 minutes away from where I live. It's this beautiful forest. I went there one day many years ago and just sat with the forest in quietude. And, uh, came to this really beautiful realization that if the kingdom of God was anywhere, it's here in this very moment. And so that, that's what inspired the song, Mount Laguna, sitting in Mount Laguna. I went out there, recorded the song, recorded the guitar during the daytime and the vocals at nighttime so that I could get the frogs and the birds to sing together in one song. Kingdom of God by Jesus Gonzalez. Now, sometimes you do live shows, and I, I want to ask you, what are they like? So on my live shows, I use, a, I use a looper, which allows me to layer lots of sounds in real time. I'll layer guitar, I'll layer vocals, shakers, beatboxing. So watching me live is kind of fun because you get to see things just happen spontaneously because I improvise a lot of what I do. Have you always made music? I mean, how old were you when you began? So I started playing music when I was eight years old, very young age. Did you have much formal training? Uh, no. I, I, so I learned by ear. I decided to just pick it up on my own. My mom offered me guitar lessons, vocal lessons, but as a kid, I didn't really want any of those things. Why weren't you interested in, in formal music lessons? I just, I felt like, I felt like lessons would make it more of a, of a knowledge rather than a feeling. And I was a little kid at the time, so it felt natural for me to just play with music and just play with the unknown aspect of it all. 
it, it seems to me that your music is particularly helpful at a time like this where there is so much stress surrounding the, the pandemic. Are you hoping that in some ways you'll be able to help people get through, make it through this time? Absolutely. I, I, I think music is a strong medicine, especially for times like these. And uh, I'm hoping that I am contributing in some way to the big to the bigger picture and helping people relax and relieve a little stress, maybe not take themselves too seriously. Jesus, what do you hope people will experience while they're listening to, to your music? To inspire others and to inspire myself by constantly acknowledging that we are living in something very special here. This thing that we call life is very miraculous. And I hope that my music and my life touches upon that for myself and others. We've been speaking with Jesus Gonzalez, who is a local San Diego musician. Jesus, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. To hear the full interview, see a video of Jesus Gonzalez performing, and for links to his music, visit kpbs.org slash summer music series.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.